Well, welcome to another episode of the Grazing Sheep Podcast. I'm your host, Big Tom Perkins, along with Dr. Cameron Meyerly. And today we're joined by Dr. Andrew Weaver from North Carolina State University. Thanks for having me. Appreciate the opportunity. Well, it's good to be here. So you want to tell us a little bit about uh, the grazing program you've got going on down there at NC State? Yeah, yeah. So um, we've got a flock of Katahdins. Uh, as well as Dorsets here at on campus. Um, we use that flock uh, to really serve the three purposes, three pillars, you could say, of the land-grant mission. Uh, that would be uh, research, teaching, and extension outreach education. Uh, and so the way we manage those flocks and what we're doing there um, is, is to serve those reasons and those purposes. And so um, grazing is a big part of that. Um, and so we're trying to uh, explore grazing systems and opportunities Um, that other producers around the state may be able to implement. Um, And we're trying a few things out, um, really at a demonstration type level, um, not a formal research project per se. Um, But over the last about year and a half or so, uh, we've been looking at annual forage systems uh, using a a crabgrass and then ryegrass uh, rotation uh, to manage our use. Um, And so uh, that's been a pretty exciting and a fun project to work on. And uh, uh, we, I can go into a little bit in terms of, you know, planting and things like that. Um, uh, the crabgrass we put in in May, um, last year we put it in first week of May. Um, we actually put it in this past week, um, about, um, let's say May 20th or so, um, here this year, um, that it takes about 45 days before it, 45 to 60 days before it's ready to graze. Um, and so we, we're look to get onto that, um, you know, mid July or so. Mm-hmm. Um, or at least by mid-July, um, and then can graze that for 60, 70 days or so. Um, and then we terminate that, um, or it terminates itself once we get a, a freeze. And then we transition over to the ryegrass, plant that in the fall, um, and typically don't get a lot of, of fall growth and grazing um, with ryegrass, but uh, come springtime, um, it's it's a pretty rapid grower and, and one that uh, provides um, a lot of, of nutrients, a lot of energy um, in that springtime, early season growth. And so um, it's worked out well, it worked out well for us this year. Uh, it was the first year we did it. Um, you're, so grazing we, that, you're grazing that pretty hard until you're, uh, until you're ready for your ryegrass to come on then? Or your uh, crabgrass, I mean? Uh, the ryegrass? Yeah. Um, yeah, so I would say, um, really, it's actually we're using the ryegrass to get onto pastures before the fescue's ready. Okay. Um, and so we've still got perennial pastures. I mean, that's the foundation of our grazing system. Um, but the ryegrass allowed us this year to probably start grazing two to three weeks earlier uh, than what we would have been able to do had we um, just relied on the fescue alone. Um, and so we were able to graze that ryegrass. Um, and then we actually we jumped over to fescue uh, for about a week, 10 days. Um, and let that ryegrass regrow, and then we're able to graze that those fields, those pastures a second time um, here this spring. Okay. So with the fescue, uh, for those that are listening, you're in central in North Carolina, and so in those fescue pastures, when do you start to see those kind of wake up, come alive, that you'd feel comfortable getting on and grazing? It's so, it's so dependent year to year. Um, you know, typically by the latter part of March, um, we're able to, to start grazing. Certainly by the 1st of April, um, we're getting quite a bit of growth. Um, 
you know, everything is, is very mature at this point um, in the year. Uh, and so, you know, you're really April's um, kind of the peak of that spring flush. Um, and so it's, it's growing like crazy. Um, you know, we had, even on the ryegrass, we had a 21 to 28 day rest on that um, before we were back on it again. And so like on the crabgrass side of things, I think, you know, where I grew up, it's not necessarily a beneficial species. So I guess, how did you come across it in terms of uh, digestibility, maybe some protein levels? What are you seeing in that standing forage and uh, maybe some some reason to, to plant that and, and graze sheep on it? Yeah, so the crabgrass idea, um, I, I can't take credit for that. Um, there's actually a, a couple other faculty members here, Dr. Harmon, uh, Dr. Poor, Johnny Rogers, um, Dr. Siciliano, um, they had been working with crabgrass for a number of years and, and saw some exciting opportunity with it. Um, and they were using it primarily in cattle or horse systems. Um, and so I figured we'd give it a try um, with sheep. Um, it's a forage that it isn't annual, um, but it, it reseeds itself very well. Um, so in many ways, it kind of acts like a perennial. Um, once you get a seed bank established in the soil, um, you know, you may have a, a nice crabgrass stand and, and without even planting it in future years. Um, and so um, it has advantages in that regard. Um, it's, a, it's a forage that has, you know, relatively high concentration of energy. Um, July 15th, the last year, it tested 74%, um, you know, which allowed us to provide our ewes. Um, we put some, some open ewes out there um, that we were looking to breed about September one. Um, and we grazed them on that crabgrass leading up to the breeding season um, and allowed us to get some, some good energy into them um, over the middle part of the summer uh, when fescue is not very active. Uh, protein uh, was a bit lower. Um, that's probably where, where we saw the shortfall, um, 8 9%. Um, but just keep in mind, we didn't apply any, no, no fertilizer, um, no nitrogen. Um, you know, it, had we put some nitrogen on it, maybe um, those protein levels would have been a bit higher. It, so you're in a kind of a grass following grass system that could probably benefit from some nitrogen. Are you applying any nitrogen to the annual ryegrass or is it just trying to recycle what's being produced by that annual grass through the sheep and then back out onto that forage? So we haven't put any nitrogen out so far. Um, and I guess uh, we've, we've gambled and uh, it's worked out well so far. Um, I'm not going to sit here and say that it's going to work forever. Um, and maybe it would, maybe it wouldn't. I, I, I just, I can't answer that question at this point. Um, you know, we are grazing relatively intensively. Um, you know, we're trying to keep our stock density relatively high. Um, and so we are trying to concentrate nutrients, um, and, and disperse those nutrients across that field, um, and recycle those. So, um, we have not applied any, any lime, any nitrogen, um, at this point, um, we have taken soil tests. Um, we took one set last summer or last spring, I should say. Uh, we took another set about two weeks ago. I haven't seen those results yet, um, but I'm kind of curious to see where we're at um, after a year um, with those annual forages and, and no um, extra supplementation in terms of, of nutrient application. So you covered the nutrition aspect of it. In terms of other health areas or, or improvements in the, the management, uh, we know parasites are a huge issue in our, our sheep flocks and certainly where you're at there in, in the Southeast, 
um, something that you guys worry about quite a bit. So, you know, we've kind of talked in the past, if you want to share a little bit on the possibilities of breaking up that life cycle with uh, kind of a double annual system, you know, two annuals back to back and how that may benefit uh, compared to our traditional perennial pasture. Yeah, and all of this is really preliminary data at this point. Um, like I said, it's really more of a demonstration. Um, we haven't conducted a formal research project with you know any sort of control um, at this point. Um, we've been pretty happy. We have taken fecals. Um, um, while the animals have been out, uh, we take a fecal once a month, just kind of assess where they're at um, while they're out grazing the annuals um, and been pleased with, with where those fecals have, have stayed. Um, haven't had a whole lot of parasite issues out on them so far. Um, that's not saying maybe in future years we wouldn't, um, but we are, um, you know, we're terminating the crabgrass. Um, and then, but, you know, before we plant the ryegrass and we're letting those pastures really rest from mid-September um, on through when we start grazing about March 1st. So they don't have anything on them uh, for quite a period of time there. Um, and then, you know, we terminate the ryegrass um, to get the crabgrass established early enough that we can actually take advantage of it. Sometimes, especially in the spring we're having this year, uh, that ryegrass would just continue to grow. Um, so we got to get the crabgrass in the ground. Um, and so we did terminate the ryegrass um, and then allow those pastures to rest again. And so, you know, you know, are we breaking up the life cycle? Um, maybe, maybe not. Um, um, we'll continue to, to look into this and see what comes of it. Um, but I've been pretty happy with relatively low fecal light counts up to this point um, in our animals that have been on those forages. And at the end of the day, really, I mean, the goal is we want to make sure first and foremost that we meet the animal's nutrient requirements. Um, and so getting them the energy and protein they need is kind of the first step to combating parasitism. Uh, and so I think using these annual forages and getting, getting those nutrients into them um, at those key life stages uh, can do a lot in and of itself um, to allow them to respond to parasite exposure. And you are utilizing uh, some minimal tillage tools in both establishments, correct? Yes, that's correct. So our, our goal with this is that um, the, the small farmer, the small producer um, uh, could implement the, the, the planting establishment strategies that we're utilizing. Um, so we have not used a drill um, for either ryegrass um, or crabgrass. Um, we've done a drag broadcast drag system. And so we go out there, um, we, we do spray um, and, and terminate the, the previous uh, stand. And then we allow that to rest for a couple weeks. And then we will drag um, those pastures and then broadcast the seed and then come back and drag it again. And that's all we've done. Um, and we were a little bit concerned with the ryegrass. And if we had a, you know enough seed soil contact with that, um, with the crabgrass residue that was left over last summer, um, but, um, and it was, it was slow to get going, um, but really came on as the spring, um, you know, got going here and here this year. And, um, uh, we're, we're pretty happy with, you know, the, the establishment that we did get with that. And when you say drag, is that like an old drag Hera or? Yeah, that's correct. Okay. So you're just, you're just, you're just putting those tines down in to where they're just kind of just knocking dirt around a little bit. Not really, uh not really the full tillage pass or anything. Yep. Just, just scratching the surface. Okay. Yeah, so my other question, uh, you, you touched a little bit on the 
annual ryegrass and you're coming back to it at like 28 days there in the spring uh you know are those continuous grazes are those fairly intensive rotational grazing passes uh and then what kind of recovery are you seeing on the crabgrass in terms of days to return to grazing in the summer yeah so it's for both the ryegrass well this spring i'd say we were in the 21 to 28 day time period the crabgrass we were right about you know 28 to 30 days right about a month um and it varied um this spring um we kept our paddock size for about 50 ewes and 90 lambs uh, we were about at between a half acre and three quarters of an acre uh, for two to three day allocations um, went in, tried to graze half, leave half, um, and get them on to the next pasture. Um, we did try to leave some residual there to, to help promote and accelerate the regrowth. Um, okay. so we did not graze it all the way to the ground. Um, and so, yeah, somewhere, I mean, it varied a little bit as the spring went on, but some, I mean, that kind of, in that ballpark is where we were at. And you were grazing like lactating ewes on that rye grass, correct? That's correct. We did have the lactating ewes out there. Um, both our Katahdins and our Dorsets uh, grazed on that rye grass. Um, the rye grass tested uh, 76 to 78 uh, TDN and um, about 14 to 15 crude protein. So did you offer any type of like creep on pasture for those lambs? No creep, uh, but we did supplement uh, the ewes one pound per head per day through lactation of course, as the lambs get older, they start stealing uh, some as well. But um, after testing the forage and realizing what kind of quality we had there, uh, we cut down on, on um, our supplementation to the ewes. Um, and we, and historically in years past, we've always um, provided a, a creep feeder on pasture for uh, the lambs, but we, we stopped that this year, um, knowing the quality of the forage that we had. So with those moves, how often are you guys trying to rotate uh, through that. So are you on like a three-day rotation? I know Tom's mentioned in, in past episodes, he's moving sheep every day. Uh, what what are you guys trying to shoot for? Yeah, somewhere in that two to three rain, day range. Um, you know, we, we have a lot of other obligations. Our, our farm staff has a lot of other things they're committed to as well in terms of teaching class and uh, labs and things like that. And so, um, you know, we, we didn't necessarily do every day. Um, but I'd say on average, it was about every two to three days. I guess, do you have any other annuals you'd like to try out? Are you pleased enough with, with this stuff uh, that you're going to keep, keep this in rotation? That's a great question. Would this work for, you know, you guys deal with a lot of end of fight uh, issue in your fescue. And is this a possibility to kind of break up that, cycle to renovate some pastures and still keep some high quality forage in front of those sheep. Yeah. So that, thanks for bringing that up. Um, and I forgot to mention that earlier, um, you know, in terms of using crabgrass as an opportunity to get off some toxic fescue, um, I think that that has a lot of potential just in and of itself. Um, you know, it allows you to graze in, um, July and August and, um, keep those animals on, on a plant that, that doesn't have that toxin. And even though, you know, fescue isn't as big of a problem in our sheep, um, you know, there still could be some impact. And so um, anything we can do to, to minimize um, that, you know, could potentially be beneficial. So that's certainly um, another advantage of using um, something like crabgrass. Um, you know, in terms of looking at other uh, annuals, 
Um, there's a lot of ideas and a lot of different people use different ones. And I get some ideas and sometimes I think they're good ideas. And sometimes I realize that they're not so good ideas. Um, one of the challenges with both crabgrass and ryegrass is um, they, they do spread quite a bit of their own seed. And so, um, you know, crabgrass, you plant crabgrass a couple of years, then you may never have to plant it again. Um, when, you know, you have that established seed bank. And so there, there is some concern if you look, if say you have a crabgrass in a rotation and then you want to go back to like a novel fescue, um, there's some concern that um, that crabgrass could potentially outcompete uh, the fescue early on, you know, in that first year um, and maybe limit um, its establishment and cause some problems there. Um, and so generally, Dr. Poor has done a lot of work. He had a grad student a few years ago that actually looked into renovation strategies um, going to novel fescue and um, other types of smother crops um, worked pretty well. Um, something that, um, you know, would shade out and out compete, um, you know, something like crabgrass um, and get that um, taken care of so you can get that fescue established then, um, you know, the following year and, uh, you know, minimize any competition from other other grasses. So while we're on the fescue side of things, kind of up where we're at, it gets a pretty negative connotation, uh, just a reputation because of uh, maybe some palatability issues. Do you guys have increased value for it? Or I guess, where do you see the benefits of of incorporating some fescue into those pastures where you're you're grazing? I mean, here in the Piedmont of North Carolina, and as you go into the western part of the state, I mean, fescue is the predominant forage. Um, we probably wouldn't be in the grazing livestock business in this part of the country if it wasn't for fescue. Um, and it has some benefits. I mean, there's a reason it's here. Um, but we all know that it does have some negative impacts as well. Um, and so it's it's just working with that. And I think a lot of it comes down to um, breeding animals that are environmentally fit. Um, those animals that work in our environment that are adapted to it um, and finding those ones that work in our systems. Um, and that that's true anywhere you are. You just got to find those ones that that fit in um, and are going to be productive um, in your environment. And so it's something we have to work with and we have to be conscientious of. Um, when we go and we buy breeding stock. We bring animals in um, in terms of our grazing systems. You know, maybe annual forages are, um, you know, one of those um, solutions or a tool that we can use to help mitigate those impacts. Um, if you can get novel fescue established, that's great. Um, it's relatively expensive to establish, but um, can certainly provide a lot of the benefits that fescue has um, and, and, you know, take away those, the toxic impacts. And I know you mentioned kind of on the sheep side of things, what you guys are doing. Uh, you know, could you give us some background on why you're raising Katahdin's, uh, why you're raising some Dorsets down there? Um, maybe some of the other sheep or other livestock you're, you know, kind of in charge of operating uh, at that university farm. Yeah. So um, historically we've had pulled Dorset sheep, um, North Carolina State is, is home, uh, the birthplace of the Pole Dorset. And so uh, while those wool producing breeds maybe aren't quite as popular anymore in this part of the country, um, we want to continue on that legacy and certainly see a value for Dorset sheep in specific uh, breeding scenarios. Uh, and so we will continue to produce them. Uh, we, with those, we do have a little bit more of a, a terminal orientation with that flock. Um, we see them as a breed that could add um, some growth and muscularity uh, to a Katahdin U base. And so um, that's kind of the direction we're going with them and, and trying to breed in some parasite resistance into the Dorsets as well. 
Um, and then the Katahdins, um, really, we've that's where we've placed a lot of focus um, since I started here three years ago. Um, as we all know, Katahdins are the foundation of our youth lock in the southeast. And we wanted to uh, be able to replicate that uh, with our teaching blocks and research blocks on campus. And so uh, we've, we've gotten into the Katahdin business, uh, running about uh, 75 U's uh, now, um, growing rapidly. Um, and so um, really trying to um, you know, get that flock established where we can utilize that to address uh, some of the questions that, that you all have um, and Katahdin breeders, other sheep breeders have um, around this part of the country. Um, and so those are our two primary breeds. And then from there, um, we do have some, some Suffolk um, sheep as well um, that are utilized as research animals uh, for another faculty's um, research objectives. Um, those animals are housed in full confinement due to their parasite susceptibility. Um, and that also provides a, an awesome teaching opportunity for our students and producers to learn about um, keeping sheep inside because I know, you know this is the Grazing Sheep podcast, but uh, there's lots of producers out there that that do raise sheep in more of a confinement-based uh, scenario. Um, and so we're able to, um, you know, teach some of that as well. Um, and then we do have some goats. Uh, we've got about 30 to 35 head of, of crossbred does, um, boar, Kiko crossbred do does um, that we use for, for teaching as well as some, some re uh, extension uh, projects as well. I would think those would be best for uh, teaching how to build good fence. It's a constant struggle. It's a constant struggle. <laughs> so uh, to Tom's point, how often are you guys moving the goats and what issues have you had? Yeah, so the goats, um, they get moved as needed, probably not as frequently or as intensively as the sheep. Um, we do have, I think like most people, uh, challenges with keeping the goats contained. Um, I don't think, you know, there's, I don't think you can make a fence too hot uh, for goats. Um, I think... Uh, you know, if it doesn't contain water, um, I'm not sure it'll contain a goat. Um, and so, um, you know, that's a, a, we have the same challenges as many others have with that. Um, we move them where we can, when we can, um, we try to keep them on, on some pretty hot fence, um, and areas where we can minimize their chances for getting into trouble. Yeah. So two things, just, you know, kind of the background, what you guys are doing there, um, could you explain on the confinement side of things, maybe some opportunities, not only in North Carolina, but in the southeastern part of the country with some other animal entities that um, the sheep industry can take advantage of? Yeah, and certainly there are opportunities uh, for confinement production. Um, we've got a lot of poultry houses that are, are, you know, to being taken retired, I should say. That's probably the best way to put it. Um, you know, the, the producers, they still want to farm. Um, they, they want to continue to raise livestock, um, but um, maybe in terms of cost to keep them up to standards for the poultry companies, um, maybe that's um, not economically advantageous anymore, uh, but there's still a building um, that sells a roof and, and could potentially be adequate uh, for housing sheep. And so we've had a lot of questions. We've got a, a few producers that are already doing it, um, others that are asking about it and, and trying to figure out the logistics of it. Um, we also have a, a few scenarios um, related to the swine industry and, and some some nursery barns um, that are no longer being utilized that folks are looking into putting some sheep in as well. Um, I always tell folks just, you know, put a budget together, um, look at what it's going to cost uh, to manage those animals in confinement. Certainly our cheapest uh, feed source uh, is that that grass is grown out in our pastures. 
Um, and so when we're not able to provide that and we have to provide more expensive feed feedstuffs, um, we certainly need to consider that um, and consider the economics and make sure that that it makes sense to to do that. Um, but I, it's something that I think should be considered and explored and for the right person in the right place uh, with the right resources um, could could certainly work. Then the other question I had, you'd mentioned the Dorset's uh, operating as a terminal sire. Uh, do you want to share kind of what what your trait selection is on that terminal sire? You mentioned, you know, when we think Dorset shape, first thing I think of, and probably those that were developed, the pole Dorset there at NC State, uh, were more maternal in their design and makeup and kind of functionality. So when you're looking at terminal traits, I guess, what are you guys selecting for? And is that just phenotypic evaluation? This one appears to have the greatest uh, you know, carcass attributes that will pass on to offspring or any other genetic tools you're utilizing. So on the Dorset side of things, um, you know, the Dorset is technically classified as a dual purpose breed. Um, and so there's certainly folks taking it in either direction. Um, there's some folks, you know, kind of chasing the maternal side. And I think in the right production system, maybe more of like a Midwest type system, um, they, that maternal, those maternal attributes could certainly be advantageous in terms of aseasonality and milk production uh, and things like that. Um, here in our systems here in the Southeast, um, the Dorset does kind of fit a little bit more of a terminal role. Um, and so we're really looking at, uh, you know, weight gain as well as muscularity. Um, we want sheep that that hit that lightweight land market as fast as possible um, and do so um, while producing carcasses that are shapely, uh, that are in a grade well and, and earn some premiums um, in our graded sales. And so, um, you know, stoutness um, and shape is certainly advantageous. And we, we make a lot of those selection decisions utilizing the eye muscle depth, EBV. Um, and so we use those genetic tools um, and try to breed those animals that hopefully are going to have increased muscularity as well as some added growth. And of course, those two traits are combined um, in our carcass plus index, um, which is our terminal index uh, provided through uh, NSIP. And so uh, we also, you know, obviously paying attention to that index and trying to increase that in our dorsal flock. So you mentioned EBV. Do you want to share with us kind of what that is? I know we're we're maybe running out of time here, but just touch on the basics and uh, how you guys are utilizing those and the value you see in that for the commercial sheep industry in the U.S. Yeah, so I'll try to keep this relatively short and maybe uh, we can get together another time and uh, dive into a little bit more detail um, if you all would like. Um, but uh, an EBV, an estimated breeding value, is simply a measure of genetic merit. Uh, and so uh, we think about some other traits. Let's just use, you know, we're all sheep producers, um, scrapey resistance. Um, and so we think about that code on 171, we think about the Q's and the R's, and that's a relatively simple trait uh, and one that we can use a couple of different letters and we can denote those animals that are more resistant or more susceptible. Um, these, these traits like parasite resistance, growth, prolificacy, they're much more complex traits that, that are controlled by a, a variety of genes, many, many, many genes. And so to use letters to try to represent that would be extremely difficult. And so instead, we use quantitative tools and metrics. Um, so essentially, we use numbers um, to represent that genotype. And so really all a, an EBV is, is a number that represents that animal's genotype, their genetic makeup for a given trait. Um, and so really, we can, we can think about it as simply as that. 
Um, when you see that number um, that's in a sale catalog or your NSIP printout or you're looking to buy some RAMs and a producer um, offers you a, a spreadsheet with some, some EBVs on it, each one of those numbers simply represents the genotype, the genetics of that animal uh, for that given trait. Um, so we can use those to compare one animal to another. Um, they, they won't tell you exactly how an animal is going to perform. Rather, an EBV tells you um, the relative differences between animals uh, in terms of expected performance. Uh, and so those EBVs are available for a variety of different traits, um, and they do represent genotype and not a phenotype, which is where they, they really have um, their power. Um, you know, uh, an EBV is calculated based on not only an individual's performance, but also um, the performance and the genetics of, of their sire and dam, their grandparents, all related individuals. Um, it takes into account any you know, sibling data, half sibs, full sibs, takes into account progeny data, as well as genetic correlations between traits. And some traits may influence another trait. And so that's all accounted for um, in the, the calculation of those breeding values. So because there's so much information that's taken into account when calculating this one single number, these numbers, these breeding values are far more accurate uh, than the, the raw metrics that we, we measure on farm. Now, that's not to say we shouldn't keep records. Records are essential uh, to providing a benchmark in terms of our, the performance of our animals and our flocks, um, but that's just the starting point. And then in terms of making selection decisions, um, those breeding values are really our most powerful tool. It's a great explanation. Well, thank you for that explanation. And we are kind of wrapping up here on our time. You got something else you want to add there, Cam? No, just want to say thank you for kind of sharing what you're doing down there in the, the southeastern part of the state. It's always interesting to talk about some forage varieties and just uh, practical applications of information uh, to to what we can kind of implement and, and maybe those specific to that region can implement. So we appreciate it. Yeah, anytime. Uh, thanks for having me. Enjoyed it. Um, always enjoy talking about both forages as well as genetics and um, learning from you all as well um, and other producers around around the country and hearing about their production systems, what forages they're using. Um, I learn a lot from you all um, and the rest of the producers here too. So um, and enjoyed uh, joining you all this evening and, and thanks for having me. Absolutely. Well, we thank you all for listening to another episode of the Grazing Sheep Podcast. We'd like to especially thank Dr. Andrew Weaver from North Carolina State University for being here with us. Uh, if you have any questions or comments or something you'd like to hear us talk about in the future, just you can do that by reaching out to me at bigtomperkins at gmail.com. And uh, so it's been good catching up with you, Cam, and good catching up to you, Dr. Weaver. And uh, we'll talk to you all later. Sounds good, Tom. Sounds good. Thanks. All righty. Bye.